somebody and say, it's good to see you. And if it's a mom, say, happy Mama's Day. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And so what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, you can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. And that will help you uh, follow along right here. And uh, every time, it will, let me say this, if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible, read it every single day. That's our gift to you because every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Three of you believe that. Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the Scriptures, you can start in the, the right and turn left. You'll find John much faster. You can go two-thirds of the way through. You'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in, in chapter 2 of John. And uh, we're going to talk... <clears throat> Every single week, I try to tell Jesus stories, and that's what we're going to do. And then today, we get the opportunity of having this great story about Jesus and this interaction he has with his mother on Mother's Day. We did not plan this, but I'm excited when those things happen. And so uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, you can say amen when you're there. Amen. I'll wait for the rest of you. Uh, uh, are you there? Amen. Amen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, a mother's worst nightmare. Uh, and Jesus said to her, no judgment, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, which holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine and every mom's favorite miracle in the Bible, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. This is going to inspire you to do some wine tasting in moderation today. Mom, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. now I want you to underline verse 11. Pay attention to it. This, the first of his signs... Signs, meaning it's pointing to something greater than itself. The sign is never the point. It's always the def destination. It's never the map that is important. It's where you're going. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. 
and his disciples believed in him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace that over the next few moments you would help us see the person of Jesus. I thank you that no matter who we are, however we came to be here today, that your grace would be sufficient for us to hear, to see, and to understand that you are great and we give you praise and glory and honor. Let everything we say and do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. <clears throat> Amen. And uh, oftentimes, uh, when we think about faith, we think of it this way. And, and I, I think this illustration goes perfect on Mother's Day because I believe mothers will endure hell for you. Amen? Amen. Three. Uh, there wasn't enough bass in the room on that one. Let me say, mothers will endure hell for you. Amen. Let me. Have, you, you know how you know how I know this that that mothers will endure hell. Have you ever been to a Chuck E. Cheese? Right. Right. Have you ever seen this place, man? This place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and little demons running around everywhere. Right, you know, and moms will go there freely, right? You know, and endure that. Dads are like, we're going where and why? You know, what, what, what are we doing there? I mean, you see, they will endure all of that. And it, it is something else. I think uh, that place always makes me think about uh, this illustration because what happens is when we read passages like this, we think about miracles. When we prayed early and we we're thinking about God doing something great, oftentimes I, I think Think, we think about faith the, the way some of us interact at Chuck E. Cheese. Because there are times when I go there, have you seen that dad? Because I'm that dad. That dad who sees the game and I'm moving kids out. You've been here too long, son. Right? Watch out. You see that high score? That's my high score. And I was here last week and that's mine and you're never beating that. And let me show you who's going to crush that high score today, friends. And I'm in there, you know what I'm saying? And there's this one game, it's called Down the Clown, right? I'm throwing out my rotator cuff just trying to down that clown how, how, how you know you have no idea what I'm talking about this guy he killed a clown a long time ago and and here's what happens is you you play these games some of you're like man you're not smart at all you're over there playing the slots you know what I mean like it's it's conditioning our children for gambling I'm just it's just true and and so they're over there but some of you have have got these games on lockdown you're just rolling the dice hitting spinning the wheel and you're hoping to hit that jackpot and then all these little tickets come out you know what I'm talking about and like I'm just trying my best I man we're coming back week after week and, and by the end of it the two-year-olds disappeared in the tickets and you're just carrying him and a pile of tickets you go what does this get me and they're like son you have we, we don't trade children here uh, and, and you're trying to, to cash in all of your tickets have you, have you seen this and and what you're hoping for is that top shelf Prize. Have you ever seen some of those? Are just like you've been dreaming about it. Like you've spent hundred and twenty-seven dollars on something you could have got at Walmart for thirty-five bucks, but yet you've been dreaming about it. You're like twelve thousand four hundred and seventy-two tickets. You're mine, big dog, right? Like PlayStation seventy-five is coming home with me, right? And, and yeah, like down. And here's here's what happens. I think the way we think about faith, in particularly, 
is much of how we see a Chuck E. Cheese game. We think that if we do all the things and, and, and we, we win all the prizes, then there, there's these tickets. You know, like if I attend church on Sunday, you know, I get like, that's like, that's like half a ticket. Uh, uh, anyways, but if you have perfect attendance, you know, that's like 15 in a row, friends. You, you know what I'm talking about? And we keep record around here. Anyways, I'm just kidding. And, and, and the tickets come out, and you're hoping that someday, man, I might get a, a jackpot, and I take all of these tickets, and I go over, and I try to cash it in for a top-shelf prize. You ever felt like you needed God to do something that was top-shelf kind of thing? You ever felt like, man, I, I, man, I need God to, I mean, most of the time, let's be honest, what we ask for is like bottom shelf kind of stuff. You know what I mean? You're like, you're like I'll take uh, three airheads, uh, uh, a ring pop, and a, and a slinky, right? <laughs> like, you're like, why do you even want that? That's not even a work next week. Like, what are you doing? That's what, that's what we settle for. But what we're hoping for is top shelf kind of prizes, and yet, here's how I know that faith has been hijacked when we think about it and we teach it like this. And this is how I know. Maybe we don't quite communicate it this way, that we think faith is like that. If I read my Bible, I get some tickets. If I go to church, I get some more tickets. Maybe I do the morning devotional. And some of you, man, you got high hopes. You're going for, the, you're, you're trying to down, you're throwing your rotator cuff out. You're like, I'm going to read the Bible in 90 days. 90 days? There's 66 books, but whatever. And... Uh, you're like, man, I'm going to go big so I can get a top-shelf prize. And here's how I know we think this way. is because the moment we ask for something from God that seems like it's audacious. Man, and I don't know about you, and I, I feel that weight this morning just preaching this sermon in the first service and now having that report of that lay. How many of you just, you need God to do something big in your life? Thank you. Amen. How, how many of you know somebody that needs a, God needs to intervene? They need God to intervene. They, they need a miracle. And here's what happens is oftentimes when, whenever that top shelf miracle kind of thing doesn't quite happen, or things don't work out the way we want it, or when we're even thinking about that top shelf prize, as we approach God, as we approach his throne, like we're approaching the counter, we're wondering, do we have enough tickets for that kind of miracle? We're wondering, is, is it enough? And, and here's how I know, is because the moment it doesn't happen, the first question we begin to ask is, God, did I have enough faith? Did I have enough tickets for that? God, did I do enough? Did I do enough to make that happen? Did I do enough for that to come through, for that miracle? I mean, that's a big one. I, I don't know if I got enough for top shelf miracle kind of prize from you, Jesus. But here's the good news about faith, is faith isn't really about you. And that's good news. Amen? You're welcome. We can all 
go home now. Because the reality is this is not about you and what you can do and all your accolades and all your spiritual doing and, and all, all you're trying to achieve and trying to do all the work and approaching God as if you could bring him anything. The Bible says that all your righteousness, all your good deeds are like filthy rags. When you try to trade it for what he can give you, you will realize that you are completely bankrupt. See, how did we get here with this? I wonder when we teach faith, why is it that that kind of gets subtly taught? And why do we think that? Why do we think that I got to have all the right words and the right combination lock? And, and then finally, if I do all the verses right, I'll unlock and there will be this glorious prize from the Lord. I think this passage in Hebrews, maybe many of you know it. I think we got some Bible babies and some felt board kids around here. How many of you know the, the verse that says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things unseen. You think? How, many, how many of you know that verse? You ever heard that verse before? See, I think sometimes what happens is we get caught up and we stop on the substance. We forget the second half of the verse. I think this is a good one to commit to memory. How about we say this together? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things unseen. You know what that the substance, do you, do you know what the substance of everything that you could possibly hope for? He has a name. His name is Jesus. Three of you, thank you. Uh, we wrote it on the wall, some of you need some help yeah, with Jesus is the substance of everything that you could hope for somebody say amen to that that's good preaching pastor come on so so amen how somebody wave a hanky at me or something like that right uh, amen right he is the substance of everything hoped for and he leaves evidence for us of things that we can't quite See, see, faith is less about what you have, and it's a question of what do you see. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you can't tell, if you're new around here, I'm not from around here. All right, all right, all right, right? And so I didn't grow up on, on, on the beach. I didn't grow up near the ocean. Some of you spoiled rotten. You need to be reminded of that. Listen, I grew up in, in Kentucky. I was eight hours from the ocean. Count them up, eight of those. Some of you won't drive 20 minutes to Refugio. It's a really long, long drive, right? I mean, shame on you, right? Like, 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 right? I mean, I mean, we got to realize. We're, I remember the first time we saw the West Coast, and, and when we came out of Egypt. I mean, Visalia, and and. Uh, and, and we were on our way to the coast, and we, we saw Pismo Beach. I thought we got to come back here and stay here. And, and I think it was our anniversary weekend with a, with a, with a, a newborn baby, a young child, and we're going we're gonna to get a, a place on the coast. And I called them up, and I said, I, I, want, I want a room on the coast. And they asked me this question, and I never thought, I mean, what an absurd question it was. They, they said, do you, do you want a full ocean view or a partial ocean view. It's like, I don't want part of it. Give me the whole dang thing, you know? Like, what do you mean? I want, the, I want the whole thing, man. I want the whole thing. But then I didn't want the whole bill. I, I, when I 
God, I called him back. I was like, can I, can I, you think I get part of the bill, you know? Uh, I didn't know, I didn't know what that meant. How many of you know that, how many of you have had, had the grace of God that you've had a room with a full ocean view? Just own it. If you haven't talked to us, we're going to hook you up. I, I got a van down by the river mouth, right, right? I'll give you beachfront property, right? Pull up in the parking lot and throw the van doors back. Anyways, uh, and so uh, if you've had that full ocean view, how many of you have ever gotten the, the partial ocean view? How many, it, it should more be called a sliver. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Because they got, you're like in the building on the side, and when you come out the door, there's like a sliver of a view. You're like, this is partial. I should have named how big the part I wanted it to be. Partial ocean view. But, but here's the reality it doesn't matter if you have a full ocean view, it doesn't matter if you have a sliver of an ocean view, it doesn't matter if you're just in the parking lot and smelling salt in the air. It does not change the majesty of the depths of the ocean determined based on your perspective. Mm, that was good, right? It doesn't, the ocean does not change based on your view of it. Jesus does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he says he is. It does not matter your view of him. And yet the Bible is full of these stories of people who have full ocean views and yet still don't quite believe. The Bible will tell us a story about Thomas. He gets a nickname called Doubting Thomas. He has a full ocean view for three and a half years of the person of Jesus. And yet he says, I still, not, I still will not believe. He's got his feet in the sand. And he says, unless I put my feet in the water, I will not believe. He says, unless I touch his hands and touch his side, I will not believe. And then we'll read stories about a woman who says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, or just have a sliver. I mean, I believe he is who he is in spite of who I am. And if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that my life would be changed. Then you'll read people like this centurion who Jesus says, no greater faith. He comes and he says, my servant is sick. And Jesus says, well, I'll go with you. And he stops him and says, you don't need to go with me. All you have to do is say the word, for I'm a man of authority. And I understand what it's like to have servants under me who do whatever I tell them to do. And I realize that I'm a, a, a ruler of men, but you rule the world. And if you just say the word, I know that it will be done. See, some people only need to simply smell salt in the air, and they will believe the power and majesty of the glory of God, which the Bible says will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Some of us just need to get to the Gaviota Pass around the current. Like, I feel it drawing me. You know what I mean? It drew me all the way from Kentucky, friend. Right? I feel it. It's pulling me. There's something about it. See, faith is the substance of everything hoped for, and the evidence is left in what do you see. This is less about what you can do. And the question is, do you believe? And seeing is believing. And we're going to talk about how to see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus is going to pray for those in John 17. He says, I pray for those who believe and yet have not seen, but believe the testimony of those who I sent. 
See, what happens here in this particular passage is, is astonishing for me. And I ask the question, like, why does, <clears throat> why does Jesus do this as his first miracle? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, you ever thought, like, of all the things Jesus could have done? I mean, he's making the moms happy on this one, but really water to wine? I mean, as the first miracle, and then people actually believe. Remember I told you to underline and put an asterisk beside verse 11. This is the first of the signs. What do signs do? They're something that we see that point us to something greater. All of a sudden, there's an insight here to why they believe. It, it, it goes on to say, the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee to manifest his glory, to show them who he is, he used that sign and his disciples believed in him. If you've ever struggled with faith, if you've ever wrestled with doubt, or maybe you're someone, you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you, you have a teenager, you have, you, have, you have a loved one, you have someone who says, mom, dad, friend, I, I'm having a hard time believing. And oftentimes what our verbiage is, is you just got to have, just got to have, anyways, I uh, heard that somewhere. You just got to have. Someone's going to sing it in a moment, I know. Uh, right? Oftentimes what we say to people is you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. Do you know how asinine that is and counterintuitive to tell someone to have something that is a byproduct of something else? See, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I know I got some Bible babies over here. Come on. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And John opens his book and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then the word became flesh. John writes his entire book. We started at the end of the book where, where he says, I write these things that you might believe. I'm writing these signs. I'm telling you these stories. I'm showing you the person of Jesus through metaphor and story and narrative. I'm telling you about the miraculous things that God has done that you might hear about Jesus and you will believe. That's what happens with the disciples. They saw Jesus. And because they saw who he was, when he revealed his glory to them through this miracle, they believed. If you want someone to believe in your life, if you're looking, don't just tell them they have to. Begin to tell them the stories of Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Why, pa Pastor Dan, why is it that you always tell Jesus stories? Because if I tell Jesus stories, maybe in your mind's eye, you will see the person of Jesus that you might believe. If you tell Jesus stories, if you show them, you tell them the testimonies. And in the service earlier, I pointed out a lady in the back who years ago was, was struggling with infertility till up into her 30s. And now she's got five boys and now grandchildren. And Cheryl Lastra tells the stories and rumors of God that God can do great things. If you've ever met our crazy drummer who yells, and everyone's his favorite drummer. You know exactly who I'm talking about. He was up here. Ask him his story. 
story about how God has healed him of cancer and how uh, God is doing amazing stuff in his life. Maybe you'll get around someone and they'll begin to tell you the rumors of how Jesus works and how good. Maybe they'll tell you how I was going this way and I was blind, but now I've been awakened to who he is, the truth of God's word, and it's changed my life. If you want someone to believe, tell them about Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall. It's all about Jesus. See, that's what this miracle shows us, is that faith comes by seeing the person of Jesus. They saw what he did, but what did they see? And what were the implications of that? And why this particular miracle? I mean, he's going to walk on water. He, he's, going to, he's going to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, out of a lunchable lunchbox. He's going to heal the sick, raise the dead. He's going to do miraculous things. Why is it that he turns water into wine? I mean, what is exactly happening here? How many of you have heard this story before and thought, man, what is kind of the point? You just own it. I've asked that question. Thank you, you honest people. The rest of you liars, right? <laughs> like I started reading that. If you heard this story for the first time, you're like, that's a thing? Like he did that? And why? He's at this wedding. And he's at this wedding, and, and he's with his disciples, and then his mother comes on the scene. And what she says is, I'm, I'm at this, uh, my friends, uh, the, the whole village and the regions around have all traveled to this wedding, and now the wine has ran out. Could you imagine the devastation? You ran out of food, you ran out of wine, you're at, at this wedding where you invited everyone to come, you planned for months, and then the wine runs out. And Mary comes to Jesus. And then there's this kind of shocking first scene. And some of you may have cringed at it when I first read it. When Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine, Jesus said to her, woman. <laughs> okay, bro. Right? You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's a little outdated. I don't think you should say that. Right? Like, imagine if you came over to my house and, and I was like, hey, woman, you know, what's this guy? You'd be like, man, we're finding a different church. I like how the pastor talks to his wife. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, woman, what do you have? Have to do with me and see at first glance you're going man Jesus what is you don't I don't think you're yourself man I think you need a Snickers right like you're not, you're not acting how I expected you to act woman like you might want to reel that back in bro you know and you at first glance you're like what is he doing I think he's lost but I, but I wonder if maybe since we're removed thousands of years from this text and if you can get a text message wrong between you and your wife and you know how that goes friend emails over two sentences should not be written and so uh, you can misconstrue some of the text because I don't know what's actually happening here and there's some evidence that, that Jesus interacts with a woman in, in, later on in the Gospels, and he has, says something at first glance without context. He's like, Jesus, what are you doing? But then how he uses what he says to her to keep pulling her in was exactly what she needed. And I wonder if what Jesus is doing is beginning to say the cultural norms of, of what people would expect him to say with a slight wink. Hey, Mom, let's show him something 
with this one. I mean, she comes over while he's with his friends, and, and that wouldn't even happen in that culture because once a, a young boy became a, 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 went to coming of age at a certain age, his mother would not have any type of authority over him. That would be all of dad's responsibility to help him become a man. She would take care of the young ones, but once he became a man, he's a man, and now he has she has nothing to do with him other than serve him and that's the cultural norm and so it would already be faux pas for her to approach him with his disciples I mean he's gathered disciples he's a rabbi people are following and then could you imagine the disciples going hey Jesus here comes your mom right <laughs> like here she comes here she comes like right could you you imagine what they're thinking like what is this I thought I was following you are you following her you imagine the, 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 the man's man, uh, Peter, and, and all of these guys, these fishermen, Andrew and John, looking around, James, and going, man, what are we doing, man? Are you, are you driving this thing? Are you a mama's boy, right? What, what's going on here? And she walks up, and she says this. She says, they have no wine. It's ran out. And I could just see him going, woman, what's that got to do with me? And then I know from her response, she doesn't argue. She doesn't say, don't talk to me that way, boy, right? <laughs> so don't talk to your mom like that, right? Especially in the South, <laughs> right? Uh, anyways, uh, that's how I lost all my hair. And uh, <laughs> she then looks, he says, what? woman, what do you have to do with me? And, and then here's the title, specifically woman. Woman, what do you have to do with me? And then she turns at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then she says, do whatever he tells you. Now, I can't help but kind of create these parallels. This other scene where there's this moment where this term woman gets used. You remember the opening pages of the Bible, right? There's Adam and Eve, man and woman. And they were in this garden and they had absolutely everything that they needed. I mean, it was amazing. This place, and I think we miss it sometimes. We think it's like the backyard that we put a, a dog in and it's a small little fence and there's a stake in the middle of it. And he says, don't touch it, whatever you do. And he's just watching. And that's how we think about the garden, a small place where God said, hey, don't touch it. And yet, like a cruel father, begin to manipulate them. And that's not what Eden was. Eden literally means unadulterated pleasure. It was goodness. At, at every length of the imagination, it was good. I mean, it was no count calories. I mean, you know how I know? Naked and unashamed. That's the only way that you could no count calories. And they're just frolicking through the garden, being fruitful and multiplying. You get the idea, right? The kids are out of here, right? This is... This is eating. This is unadulterated pleasure. This is for your good. If you thought that God wasn't for your pleasure, you've never read the Bible. It is for your good. I remember after the first day, he said it was, and the second, third, good, 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 good. It was good, right? He said it was good. And yet all he said was, I don't want you to know that which is evil. 
There's this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What is it about us that we have what is good, yet we long to know more and we want more information, we want all the data, we want to know good and evil. And then when they take, Eve is deceived by the serpent and twists the first lie and says, listen, God, uh, God is worried that if you take this, he's not trying to keep you from harm, he's trying to keep you from good. Think about how that works with our parents now. Years later, we have to look at mom and dad and say, hey, thank you. I, I didn't realize what you were trying to keep me from. Thanks, dad. Uh, right? Some of us got to remember, and that's what we do with our kids. They don't know, we're not trying to keep you from good, son. And most of the time, what we want is those bottom shelf things. What we're really asking for is a, is a slinky that's not going to work next week. You go, listen, son, I know you got these tickets, but you don't need any of this. Your stomach's going to hurt. You don't need 14 airheads. What are you crazy? Okay. And think about all the things that we desire tends to be desires that are in regards to you can do it. I know it's difficult, right? Desires that have to do with me. Well, we can do it together. Desires that have to do with me. We're like a J.G. Wentworth commercial. It's, like, it's my money and I want it now. I want what I want. And we think because our perspective and our view is off of who he is. See, that's the first part. Unlocking who he is. If you have a dis distorted view of who he is, it will change how you interact with him. If you think he's trying to keep you from good and not keep you from harm, how you see God will affect everything in your life because belief drives behavior. Your view of him matters from day one in the garden. They could not see that God had given them good and he already made them like him. See, the serpent comes in and says, listen, God's just worried that if you take of this tree, you will be like him. The first twist of the lie. Do you remember what the opening pages of Genesis says? God says, let us make man in our image. They were already like God, different than all the other created order. They are different than the beasts of the fields. They, he, he takes the lowly and elevates it to status above the angels and yet we could not see it. How many of us have been around people who have everything and yet don't realize it? You see, we read on tabloids, we see on newspapers, people who, who completely are empty, yet you look around and go, man, if I had your life, really? See, the reality is, is that we will always do what Adam did. I love this, and there's this, uh, don't judge me, but the great prophet Kanye West. Um, <laughs> He has this song called Everything We Need. We have everything we need. And then he says this. He says, what if Eve made apple juice? Which is my, my son's favorite song, right? What if, Eve, what if Eve made apple juice? And then he says this. You're going to do what Adam do. He said, but what if instead you said, hey, baby, let's put this back on the tree because we have everything we need. And but here's what we do. We always do what Adam does. And we took, and Adam and Eve uh, realized their nakedness and their shame, and they hid. And God said, where are you, Adam? He hid. He said, why did you hide? He said, because I was naked and ashamed. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? What happened? He said, she made me do it. <laughs> right, listen, bro, that line's not going to work anymore. It's used up, okay? Amen. 
says, the woman you gave me. Notice, quickly, right? There was no collaboration and quick to, to point the finger and condemn, right? We're quick to point fingers, although we're not willing to ask questions in the moment and collaborate with one another and say, what's the right thing to do? But if it all goes south, we're quick to know exactly whose fault it was, the woman. And then he says to the woman, Eve, what did you do? And she said it was the serpent. Everyone's pointing fingers at someone else. No one's willing to address what they've done, that, that what's internal, that their desires tend to be towards them and their blame tends to be towards everyone else. Have you seen that as a trend? This is not a new trend. And then Genesis says this, Genesis, because of the fall, Genesis 3 goes on to tell us the result of it. And God gives this prediction. He tells the, the serpent, he says, because you did this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put fury between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. All of a sudden he realized there's going to be something between this enemy, Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. He says there's going to be fury between them. There, 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 there's, there's going to be violence and there's going to be a battle between the son of Eve and the son of the serpent. This is in Genesis, all pointing forward. And he says this, and I love this translation says, and here's what will happen. He says, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll bust your head. And then he goes on and says this at the end of chapter three. In verse 22, he says this, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now least he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why is it? Because man would live forever knowing evil and torment. Notice that in our modern mythology with superheroes and, and, and immortals who live forever, it is not a blessing, it is a curse. We know this deep down inside that to live forever knowing evil like we have today would not be a blessing but a curse. So God drives him out, lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever in his tormented state. And so therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground in which he was taken. Now look at this verse here. It says this, he drove out man and at the east of Eden, east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard. I want you to read this last line with me. The way to the tree of life. The way. The way. To guard the way to the tree of life. I want to expand on this teaching of the tree of life just for a moment. The Bible Project is a source that I use often. The banner in the back is the Bible Project. I use it to help disciple people as I meet with them. And I want you to see this video. And then we'll come back and I'll show you the parallels in this passage.
The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the Tree of Life. So, what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it. Or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that, it leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way. But Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it. 
helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden, which is also a kind of temple, with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. Amen. So why does he choose as his first miracle to turn water into wine? See, I think it's an interesting way to start, to start at this celebration, to start at this party, to start at rest. You notice that Adam and Eve's first day was God's seventh. Adam and Eve literally started at rest, at a party, not at at a celebration. Oftentimes when we think about us and God, we think of what we need to do to get to work. We clock in and we store up our tickets. We try to do whatever we can, but here's where Jesus starts. He starts with giving you something and it's the best. And he starts with a celebration. It's counterintuitive. How many of you go to work and go on break? Don't look at him. Right. See, that's the very nature of who God is, where he starts with you is a party. It's a celebration. It's an invitation to the party. I mean, the opening scenes of the Bible is a wedding ceremony between Adam and Eve and a glorious, never-ending celebration in Eden. And yet we walked away from it. And here he starts redeeming the story. The new Adam. Here comes a woman who from that day forward has gotten a bad rap, but he redeems it. And he submits. He says, woman, what has this got to do with me? And I'm sure she looked at him and said, you know exactly what this has to do with you. Because I know who you are. And notice the desire of Mary versus Eve. Eve's desire was about, you can do it. Eve's desire was about, See, just like Adam, just like Eve, our desire is about me. But what's Mary's desire? Just like every great mother, her desire has little to do with her. What can the ladies, what can the mothers in our lives teach us is that this is never about you. When you make decisions based on you, you'll end up with a life just with you. But when you make decisions based on everybody else, all of a sudden you'll realize your life is full. And there's a party going around. What'd she say? She goes, listen, they're going to run out of wine. I know it's going to be embarrassment for them. The, The request had little to do with Mary and had everything to do with everyone else. We can start with when we think about the request we have for God. Are they bottom shelf? Do they have to do with us? Or do our requests have to do with every? one else and see what you'll find is when you spend more and more time with Jesus your desires change 
you realize that you have everything you already need. And what you'll do is you'll begin to see others' needs above your own and your requests that you have for God. So the beautiful request of Mary is, can you provide for everyone else? What if the church, what if us as individuals stopped praying prayers that were focused on us like Adam and Eve and we started praying prayers like Mary focused on everyone else? That's good preaching. Somebody should say amen to that start there and then what does he do he, he he tells the servants he goes go get these six jars that were set apart for purification and we're not really sure exactly what these jars but it was a custom and it could have came from the talmud which was a rule book on how to keep the rules you've never been to those types of churches have you right? rules upon rules and here's the rules on how to keep the rules and so it's it's interesting that there's six jars which is the number of man, which is the day that Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. And so they were there for, to be filled with water, potentially for cleaning dishes. And they would have this, this idea that in order to change their status of what they were using from dirty to clean, they would have to dip it six times. And it's just interesting that God would, Jesus would choose those jars that were meant for washing the external. And he would say, fill it with water, and then the miraculous would happen. And he says, draw out, and then the water would be turned to wine. Now notice that Jesus' last meal with his disciples, he takes a cup of wine, and he says, this is the blood of my new covenant. This is given for you. Take and drink. In John 17, he says, he is the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will live. Jesus says to a group of people after one day they came, uh, the next day after feeding the 5,000, they come for a free lunch. And he says, listen, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no Part with me. He literally says, I'm offering you the tree of life. Take and eat. Why is that important? Because oftentimes when we think about Christianity, we think it's about washing the external. We think it's about how many times can we dip and go through the process and clean ourselves? How many times can I try to change my status? How many times can I come to church and read my Bible and get this together and dip and dip in it? And here's what he's saying. No, no, no. This isn't about you changing the external. This isn't about you getting in your church clothes. And listen, you guys all look great in your church clothes. Good job, mom. Right? Like, uh, right? It's not about you changing the outward. Jesus did not come to change your appearance and make you a better version of the same old you. Jesus did died to give you the tree of life that you may become brand new. The next story, John, Jesus is going to talk to Nicodemus where he's going to say, what is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of water is water, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. John's a brilliant storyteller. And he puts these, these two parallels together and he turns water to wine. He says, this is about a new birth being born again, being changed from the inside out. Why? 
so that you could be like him and that inside of you would be bursting living waters and that your life would be a tree of life that other people could take and eat and see the glory of God. Why? Because seeing Jesus will cause people to believe. How will people see Jesus? The Bible says this, how will they see God who is invisible? And he says, they'll see him because of you. He turns water into wine because he wants to fill you with new wine. A, a wine that is the life of Jesus. So that everywhere you go, when people see you, they see Jesus. You want people to believe? Show them Jesus. Take and eat and see that God is good and allow his life to burst through right in the middle of yours. And everywhere you go, live and look like Jesus. Why? Because faith is less about what you do and it's more about who he is. And this water to wine says that he has the power to create something out of nothing. He can take what you never thought could produce fruit, what you never thought. I love the symmetry here that he brings and gives us and shows us the way to the tree of life. Thomas says, how will we know the way? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to find life, look at the person of Jesus. If you want your son, your daughter, who's wayward from Jesus, if you've been praying and been hoping that they'll come back, if you've been praying for that friend, that neighbor, that boss, that coworker, stop hoping that you can give them the right stuff. Stop hoping that you can do all the right things and bring your tickets in to cash in a top miracle. But would you just simply begin to show them Jesus? Because the Bible says, that people will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Verse 11, this, the first sign Jesus did at Cana and Galilee to manifest his glory and his disciples believed. Jesus wants to use your life as a sign pointing to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly Father, I thank you that you manifest your glory and you do miraculous things. Help us to see you more clearly with every story we hear, with every scripture we read. Let more and more the sediments of culture, the sediments of life and pain and tragedy that have so buried the image of who God is on us. Let us live in resurrection power that new life would raise above the sediment. That you would bring something beautiful. This, pa this passage shows us that you have the power over creation so you can create something new right in us. And you do it from the inside out, water to wine. We will take and eat of the tree of life and we'll live in such a way 
that other people may see you through us and glorify God who is in heaven. We thank you that everything that we say and do would be a sign for people, for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise? I'll end with this. I shared this in the first service and this is just free. I think today is a great opportunity for us as children, as husbands, as with our moms to see the gospel in a different way on Mother's Day because mothers endure things that some of the rest of us won't go through. Amen? They'll pick up nasty, dirty, filthy children and hug them, right? They run to me and I'm like, what is on you, Chuck? Clean, clean this thing off. Like, I don't want, want this, right? I, she's like, what's wrong? I, I was just holding them. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't want that all over me. Right, moms will do something. And, and here's, here's the, the thing that I think women can display for us, men, that we'll never understand. The Bible said is the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. The joy set before him. He endured such pain. The only thing that I can compare that to is a mother who would endure childbirth just to know her children. Have you ever seen this? It's the worst day of my life watching childbirth, right? <laughs> and then moments after there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, right? They're just like, give me that baby, right? And all of a sudden they're laughing and smiling. And I'm like, do you know what just happened? Well, you know what you just endured? And then this crazy thing happens. Like a year or so later, they forget all of that tragedy. And they're like, let's do it again. What? And then I remember I said this a few years ago, and I was like, and then she said, let's do it again. Let's hope not. And then we did it again, right? See, moms can show us something. They'll endure. And so today... Just like that view, think about your mom. Think about moms around the world, the mother of all living things. Everybody's got a mom. And she endured something for the greatness of knowing you. Romans 8 says this, I do not consider our present sufferings worthy to be compared to the greatness of knowing God. Only moms can teach us that. To endure such suffering all so they can know the warmth of a child. Today, celebrate the ladies in your life and know that they can show you a picture of the gospel. Enduring the greatest pain known to women, because men know nothing about it, right? And they did it all for their children. How much more did God endure the cross so he could know you as a child? Live in that today on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day.